welcome back. This is Daily Buddhism Audio Show number 62, recorded April 28th, 2013. My name is Brian Shell, and I'm your host for the show. You can find the text as well as all links mentioned in this program and all past episodes on the website at www.dailybuddhism.com. Get everybody current and up to date. If you aren't signed up for the email newsletter, go to www.dailybuddhism.com and fix that oversight right now. It's free and easier than ever to sign up. Note that after the long absence, I threw out the old email list. Rather than deal with people who had forgotten about me, I decided to start over. So if you used to get the email back in the old days, sign up again. All fresh and new now. If you enjoy the podcasts and the website and the emails and the tweets and the Facebook pages and whatever else comes along this week, then don't forget to buy the book. My book, The Five-Minute Buddhist, was recently released on Amazon, Nook, iTunes, and as a paperback. Any which way you want it, you can get it. It's essentially the best of the Daily Buddhism website. You can get it in pretty much any format you want. Just go to www.dailybuddhism.com book and follow the various links from there. If you've already picked up a copy, then please do leave a review on whichever site you got the book from. And also notice I'm getting the podcast caught up from way, way back. The following post never made it into the the previous last podcast way back in 2009. These are topics from that time period. Over the coming weeks, I plan to record podcasts for these retro topics until we get all caught up. All these topics are still on the website, and there's no reason whatsoever why you can't leave your comments on them at any time. The website still works. Go check it out. I'd love to hear what you've got to say about these topics and anything else that comes along. And now, let's get on with this week's show. And our first topic this week is called Wishing Your Life Away, and this one originally came out on August 2009. A question from a reader. I am particularly concerned about a friend who always seems unhappy at work, complains about how some colleagues are making her life difficult, and how little she earns. She believes that marrying and giving up her job would bring her happiness. She reads books that teach her 10 ways of dealing with people who make your life miserable, which is not a very useful category of writings in my humble opinion. She also believes that an ideal job is one in which she can look forward to going into the office every morning. I think she is suffering because her expectations are not realistic. Particularly, I find the state of always looking forward to something very dubious. I've only ever looked forward to work, probably for the first few months in a job. Me, looking forward to something, is an extreme emotion that can only last for a short period of time. If I look forward to the weekend, probably expecting that I would enjoy every minute of it. There's some amount of indulgence involved in that. If I look forward to lunchtime every day, it would probably make the rest of the day very tiresome in comparison. Hence, constantly looking forward to some event is not only impossible to achieve, It also causes more suffering if that event is not what one would expect. Well, that's my layman's opinion. I would like to hear about the Buddhist view of this. Is looking forward to something a realistic feeling that can be sustained in the real world? Or even when one is enlightened? Or is it an extreme emotion, not unlike intense passion and attachment, which which a Buddhist should avoid? Many thanks for your response. I hope my question is not too vague to you, as I have not learned proper Buddhist terms to explain it. Okay, and my response to that would be, proper Buddhist terms here? Not necessary at all. 
I try to steer away from all the jargon anyway. I don't think having hopes and dreams are unrealistic at all. I have them, and I sincerely hope you do too. The problem, from the Buddhist standpoint, is when we get too attached to the dreams and start to avoid reality. If your friend is neglecting the here and now in favor of these hopes for something better in the future, then yes, she's probably going to regret it someday. We've talked before on whether or not it's okay for Buddhists to make long-term plans and expectations for the future. And it is okay, by the way. And this is a related problem. Buddhists are realists. Simple facts are that the past is gone. Dwelling on the past is unproductive. Future may or may not happen the way we envision it, and there's no use in getting attached to hopeful outcomes. You're in the present, here and now. Now is the only time you really have any control over, so make the most of it. Now is all you really have, so enjoy it. Learn from it. Do some good with it. Wasting the now, thinking about what might be, or could be, or should be, or whatever, is robbing reality to spend on dreams. Work harder to make the reality of now a better place. And next up, another question. After having studied Buddhism for a while, I've come to some ideas about the philosophy and in particular its relation to morality. For Westerners especially, Buddhism seems to be paradoxical and difficult to really categorize. I can accept that some things cannot be controlled, that man cannot directly choose his circumstances all the time. However, Buddhism, in particular Zen, which is influenced by Taoism, has, throughout its teachings, a kind of whatever-happens-happens kind of ideal. It seems to me that this could be fatalistic. If life is out of our control, what about morality? If bad things just happen, and chaos, the order, order to chaos is inevitable, doesn't that destroy our notion of choice? This can also create a kind of unclarity in one's mind about what is right, what is wrong. It can be used as an excuse for surrender to responsibility for And my answer is, my own chief complaint with Taoism is that it seems passive in the extreme. Buddhism is not quite so passive, however. Yes, it teaches us to accept what comes by not grasping at expectations, but that's not the same as being helpless to control one's own fate. Bad things do just sometimes happen. So do good things. We need to learn to roll with the punches and deal with things as they happen. A great deal of suffering and unhappiness results from broken expectations and unpleasant surprises. Learn to see past all that. This all relates to bad things that come from outside sources, not our own choices to do good or bad. If a truck runs off the road and drives through your house, is there anything you can do about that? No. Yet, if you continually hang around negative, discouraging, toxic people, is it likely that you'll grow to take that point of view? Yes. You do have control over that sort of thing. You have control over who you call a friend. You have control over the food you eat. You have control over the words you speak and the choice of entertainment you enjoy. Most importantly, you have the choice and the control over your own actions. And this is where the Buddhist ideas of morality come into play. You do, in fact, have control over your thoughts and actions. That's really the only thing you do have control over. We all need to learn the differences between the things you have control over and the things you do not, and focus your energies on changing the things we can. There's an old prayer that's not particularly Buddhist that goes like this. 
Lord, grant me the patience to bear the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Well, I don't think Buddha really has a whole lot to add to that. And next up, one more question. I know that Buddhist belief is based greatly on experiencing the teachings for yourself and not taking what anyone says, even the Buddha himself, as truth without first examining it ourselves. However, I am confused as to where the belief in rebirth and karma comes from in Buddhism. I agree with this Buddhist belief that we should not blindly follow anything anyone says and must figure things out for ourselves and experience them. But the belief in reincarnation seems to go against this. How can we possibly know that rebirth occurs if we can't see it for ourselves? Thanks for the wonderful podcast. Okay, my answer to that one is that we've talked about this in the past several times. But I think this may be the number one point of Buddhism to which Westerners cannot relate. Most non-Buddhists recognize reincarnation as the butt of uncountable jokes, scams, and is generally taken seriously only by some very strange celebrities. The fact that a huge portion of the world's population do believe in rebirth is irrelevant if all you know is Shirley MacLaine jokes. No one really knows the origins of the rebirth idea. It goes way back beyond Buddhism into Hinduism and is probably far older than even that. I'm only guessing here, but I'd bet that the idea of rebirth is probably older than the concepts of heaven or hell. Ancient people understood the cycle of life very well. You're born, you age, you die. It's no great leap to see that cycle as a wheel that repeats. The idea is so old, however, no one can say absolutely where it came from. But the idea has been refined and elaborated over the years, first by Hinduism, then by Buddhism. And as you said, it's not a requirement that you believe anything blindly. And Buddhism encourages questioning. While it is true that many of the writings on Buddhism concern themselves with reincarnation, it's not really absolutely necessary to believe in it. The majority of Buddhist ideas relate to your life here on earth, right now. Promotion or demotion in the next life is not something to be strived for. That's just more attachment and grasping. The goal is to live a good life now. Whatever happens next time around, just happen. If the Buddhist concept of rebirth is correct, It'll happen to you whether you believe in it or not, so don't worry about it. If it causes you to doubt, which causes its own kind of suffering, then throw that idea out. Keep an open mind, do some research into different ways people explain rebirth, and maybe someday you'll come to believe it. Or maybe not. Do a search on dailybuddhism.com for my previous podcasts and articles on this, and see what you think. And next up, we have our koan of the week. This one is entitled, How Grass and Trees Become Enlightened. During the Kamakura period, Inken studied Tendai six years and then studied Zen seven years. Then he went to China and contemplated Zen for 13 more years. When he returned to Japan, many desired to interview him and asked an obscure question. But when Shinkan received visitors, which was infrequently, seldom answered their question. One day, a 50-year-old student of enlightenment said to Shinken, I have studied Tendai school of thought since I was a little boy. One thing that I cannot understand. Tendai claims that even the grass and trees will become enlightened. To me, this seems very strange. 
of what use is it to discuss how grass and trees become enlightened? The question is how you yourself can become so. Do you ever consider that? I never thought of it that way, marveled the old man. Then go home and think it over, finishing. Okay, next up we have two questions that are sort of related. One was based on the other. Okay, first one up was, Hello, I am pretty new to Buddhism. I have been a Zen Buddhist for a year. Before that, I was a Christian. I left due to people who are conservatives, and I disagreed with it. I was born in California. Now I live in Texas, so as you can guess, I get no gain here in Texas. Besides that, my questions are, that I'm a proud supporter of gay marriage, and I support stem cell research. And I'm also pro-choice. Do my beliefs check out with Zen Buddhism, or is what I believe sinful? I'm also studying A. Guevara. He turns out to have been a great guy. Studying the Buddha and Marx. Is it wrong to agree with Shay, or is it okay? Also, I read a great book recently titled Siddhartha. It was about his life. In the book, he states that there is another Buddha, Gautama. Is that true? Is Siddhartha a true book based on the real life of the Buddha? Last but not least, due to the ignorance of others here in Texas, I get no leverage and I try to remain peaceful. It's very hard. I get frustrated. What should I do to ignore these conservatives and reach enlightenment? Okay, then my response. Wow, that's a lot to work with. I'll warn everyone here ahead of time that everything that follows is my opinion. Feel free to add yours in the comment section on the blog, especially if you disagree. Okay, first, let's start with the easy part. The book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse isn't really about the Buddha. It's about a regular man named Siddhartha who lived in the same region at the same time as the Buddha. The Gautama character in the book is the person we call Buddha. Siddhartha is just a character in this book of historical fiction. It's a great book. None of it is considered to be true. Okay, next. I see nothing wrong with studying Marx. He is one of the world's major philosophers, after all. You'd be cheating yourself to not understand what it was he was saying. I'm not here to promote my own political beliefs, but Che Guevara is definitely not on my list of admirable people. Quite the opposite, in fact. You won't be finding one of those t-shirts in my closet. Rather than turn this post into a rant, up there. Number three, as far as the acceptability of gay marriage, stem cell research, and pro-choice, that varies from Buddhist to Buddhist, just as it does with any other group. For the most part, I think the majority of Buddhists are probably okay with gay marriage, but against abortion. I don't really understand the stem cell argument well enough to comment on that. Every individual has their own opinion on these topics. Okay, I have addressed the topic of dealing with hatred in the past. Do a search on the site for Dealing with Hatred to find that article. Okay, and then the following day on the blog, someone left a comment on that posting, which they didn't entirely agree with. They wrote that, I'm a little disappointed in your answer for two reasons. First, the author did not ask how to deal with hatred. He asked how to deal with the ignorance of others. Two, I really wanted your opinion on the subject because I have wanted to ask the very same question many times as I have struggled with the same subject many times. Other than that, keep up the good work. I find that your writing stimulates the thoughts of others, and that can't be a bad thing. And my response to that one 
was, first, let me point out that if you wanted to ask the question many times, then you should have asked sooner. I'd love to answer questions. They give me something to write about. So by asking questions, you're doing me a favor as much as you're helping yourself by asking. Don't hesitate or fear to email me. I'm always eager to tackle any topic. Now on to your real comment. I feel that ignorance and hatred are heavily intertwined. Generally, we fear or hate things we don't fully understand, and we don't try to understand things that we instinctively hate. It's a major catch-22, and we have to try to handle those subjects carefully. In theory, if you're simply running into plain ignorance, then all you have to do is explain yourself to the person in question, and they won't be ignorant anymore. It's rarely that simple, since there's either fear or hate involved. Fear and hate are powerful barriers that are open to the open mind. Still, simple explanations are probably the best place to get started if you really want to beat ignorance and teach others. One way to coexist with those who are judgmental is to simply not give them anything to judge you with. Become a role model of good Buddhist behavior, live the life, and be a real role model. Personally, I don't walk around town advertising the fact that I'm a Buddhist. There are only a handful of non-internet friends and family that even know I am one. I see no need to tell everyone what I believe, as there's always some people out there who are going to judge me in a negative way. Yes, that's due to ignorance on their part, but I know that I can't educate everyone, especially those who have already made up their minds. I'm perfectly happy being the best Buddhist I can be, in my actions and words, and every once in a while when the topic comes up with a friend or colleague, it's the perfect opportunity to explain things to them. By demonstrating in my day-to-day actions that Buddhists aren't heathen idolaters, or whatever some people want to call us out of ignorance, people are much more open to my opinions when it eventually does come up. I'm talking about Buddhism, but the same goes for the original questioners' opinions on gay marriage, abortions, philosophy, and communism. Both sides of each of the topics he mentions have strong arguments that make perfect sense to the people who advocate them. Neither side is clearly wrong or blatantly stupid, although at times the opposition probably feels otherwise. People in California are generally speaking more liberal-minded than those in Texas. That doesn't make either group right or wrong. Still, if the writer is walking around Texas in a Che Guevara t-shirt, carrying his book on Marx and holding his boyfriend's hand at the pro-choice rally, he's going to find some people willing to, uh, unwilling to accept, or even listen to, his ideas. The writer didn't say he was doing all those things, but he definitely seems to have an issue with conservatives, so I get the impression that the hostility may be a little mutual. I don't intend to attack anyone, but sometimes the people who yell the loudest about others' ignorance are the ones trying hardest to shove their own ideas down someone else's throat. If this is the case, then he needs to examine why it is so important to him to change the minds of others and let that go. I've always found that a little diplomacy goes a long way, and simply keeping my mouth shut in some situations goes even farther. If you go out looking for a fight, it's usually pretty easy to find one. And that's all I have for you this week. Remember, the Daily Buddhism runs primarily from your donations, and it's easy to help out. Just go to www.dailybuddhism.com donate and click on one of the options there. You can donate as little as a dollar or as much as you want. 
Keep in mind that the Daily Buddhism Daily Email Letter is completely free. All you need to do is go to the site and sign up. And don't forget while you're there to buy the book. www.dailybuddhism.com slash book will get you the 5-Minute Buddhist in Kindle, Nook, or paperback. If you have a question on any Buddhism-related topic, send in your questions by email to dailybuddhism at gmail.com. And until then, I'll see you next week. 